Our scripture text this morning is from 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 1 through 11. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. They will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. Have you ever considered what it would be like to know the future? I mean, to know what was going to happen. You would know when COVID would be over. You would know who would win the election. You would know if there's an economic downturn ahead. I mean, have you ever considered what it would be like to know the future? I mean, for many people, it actually would be, I think, quite frightening. I mean, quite you know, producing anxiety in us to know that something's coming directly at you that you can't stop. I mean, to know the things that may happen that would turn your life upside down and and for it to be far enough in the future that you really begin to worry about it. I mean, what would it be like to know the future? But let me ask you this. You know, if you knew the future was really good, let's say you knew what was coming was insanely good. I mean, it would, it, would, it would change the way you look at this life. It would change the way you go through issues in life. Well, you know, in, in a way, this is what Paul's kind of doing for us. He's kind of telling us what is in the future. Now, just a few weeks back, we looked at Thessalonians, and he was answering the question, what happens to those people who die, who die in Christ before he returns? Are they at a disadvantage? Of, they're not here when he returns, but they've already died? And Paul says, no, not at all. No, their spirits are going to be with the Lord. And then, and then when Jesus returns, he will bring them with him and their, their bodies are caught up, they're made new, and they're with the Lord forever. So no, they're in great shape. So then the next question was, well, what about the living? What about us who will be alive at that time? How do we prepare? How are we assured that it will be a good day? And I think that's what he's answering today. How do you prepare for that day? You know, how do you get ready for that kind of cataclysmic day? It's a profound question that we live day after day and we rarely even give thought to it. Well, he gives us the answers here in these first 11 verses of chapter 5. He really says three things, and I think it, you know, relatively simple to understand, maybe not as simple to live out. But the first thing is that this day will come, this second coming, this return of Jesus will come unexpectedly. It's going to be unexpectedly. And and not just that, secondly, it does demand your engagement and your preparation. You are involved. You are not simply going to be acted upon, but you need to prepare. And then thirdly, it's a day that you ought to look forward to with longing. 
We get excited about vacations or Christmas or celebrations. This is a day that ought to capture much time and attention of your heart. So those three things. First, it's unexpected. Um, Look with me at 1, 2, and 3. He says, Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Let me stop there for a minute. Remember last time, uh, they were uninformed about what happens to the dead. And he says, I don't want you to be uninformed, brothers. So he knew that they didn't know the answer to their question, what happens to the dead. And so he informs them. Well, it seems that they may have been asking him again, well, what about when's he going to come back? That's the question on our mind. When, when, when? And he's saying, listen, concerning the times and seasons, you have no need to have anything written to you. You are already fully aware. Paul had already told them. I I just think there is just this thing in us that we've got to ask when. I mean, I think of even great men like Jonathan Edwards and Martin Luther wanted to predict and thought that they knew when the millennium would start. It's just incredible how we want to try to zero down on a date. And Paul's saying, you won't know. Just got to get used to it. You won't know. And he's only parroting the words of Jesus, who in Matthew or in Mark 13, 3, he said that no one knows the hour or the day. But here's something interesting. Even after the resurrection, when the disciples come up to Jesus, he's now raised, right? And they say, when are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he says, It is not for you to know the times and the seasons. The same two words in the passage in uh, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 1. It's not for you to know. It's not that you won't know. It's not that you can't know. It's not for you to know. So God has intended that we don't know. It's going to come unexpectedly, just like a thief in the night. Listen, you know how thieves come. They don't send you a reminder of when they're going to attack or rob your house. They don't say, hey, next Thursday evening at 2 a.m., I'm going to be breaking in your window to rob you. That's why you lock your doors every night. You don't know. It's unexpected. It's unexpected to the church. But notice what he says to the world in verse 3. He says, while people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. So he's telling the church, listen, brothers, you see that in verse 1. He's speaking to the church. Hey, it's going to be unexpected for you. But then he turns and reminds us that the world doesn't just, they're going to be surprised. We'll be surprised over the day, but not the event. The world will be surprised over the event. In other words, you're going to be saying it's peace and security. You may be sharing with your neighbor. There is a day that he will return and that he's going to judge the living and the dead, just like we'll say in the Apostles' Creed today. There's going to be that day. You may be embarrassed to say it, but you could say it, and they may say, no, there's too much peace and security. Look at our world. We're in great shape. That's what they're going to be saying. And I think that's the point of the labor pains. Labor pains probably are expected by most mothers. The labor pains are just unavoidable. You you can't avoid them. It's inevitable. He's saying you're not going to escape. The world will not escape. You can run to the hills. You can run to the the valleys. You can run to the caves. You won't escape. What Paul's saying is this day is going to come unexpectedly, and it's unavoidable. It's coming. And, And Jesus said the same thing. You know, he said in Matthew 24, He said, for as in the days of Noah, so will be the days of the coming of the Son of Man. 
In those days, before the flood, they were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. So it may not be this cataclysmic, everybody looking to the sky. Listen, peace and security. It's going to be unexpected and it will be unavoidable. And this day is a day of judgment. Remember what it says, that sudden destruction will come? It is a day of judgment. Listen, the day of the Lord, you're going to see it peppered throughout the whole Old Testament. You see it in Malachi, you see it in Amos, you see it in, in um, Hosea, you see it in Joel. This day of the Lord, the day of the Lord is an expression in the Scriptures where God intervenes in the world to rescue his people and to bring justice to the wicked. You see it time and time again through the nation of Israel, but they're all prefiguring this final day of judgment where God will send the Son and bring the whole world in subjection to the Son. That's what we heard last week in Psalm 2. That Jesus will interrupt our world and he will come in space and time to establish his kingdom to bring punishment to the wicked, and to bring deliverance to the righteous. This is the greatest day on earth. It's the day that the earth is actually groaning for right now. It's an incredible day. Now, to the Christian, this is a promise. This isn't a warning. The promise is given to us that while it's unexpected, it is quite certain, and you can plan on it. In other words, you don't ever have to worry that the world's going to end in nuclear fire, or climate imbalance, or in some pandemic. Those things may affect our world. They may be the labor pains, but they won't be the end. God is sovereign, and he will direct the end as he directs it. It will be through the coming of the Son of Man, upon which he will then put his feet and establish his rule over all people in all time. It will be as God intends. How often do you think about this day? When was the last time not going to two weeks ago, and I talked about it before, but go before then. When was the last time you thought about it? Why doesn't this get more shelf time in our mind? Why don't we think about this more? Uh, why don't we ponder it? What hinders you from thinking about it? Is it the busyness of life? Does it seem just like a fairy tale to you? Does it seem like kind of a, 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 something that a movie should be made out of? Is it embarrassing? We want to think about it. And, and, you know, even if you're here or you're listening and you're not a Christian or you're investigating the faith or you haven't arrived at a place where you're convinced in these things, does it seem strange to you that Jesus Christ would return? I, I admit, I mean, I can admit that if, you're a, if you believe in just material or natural life, that there's nothing outside of our space and time, it does seem absurd, no question about it. But isn't there something attractive about it? I mean, to think that justice will be established, to think that righteousness will be revealed, fairness will be meted out to all, there's no more corruption, there's no more brutality, the, the, the weak and the vulnerable are no longer exploited. I mean, isn't there something really attractive about that? I mean, why do you think even among the most liberal of thinkers, they always desire a utopia? And it may be in their own fashion, in their own making, but they always desire a day when these problems that we see would be removed. I mean, let's just assume that even among some of the protesters, let's just say the most honest of protesters, that they're looking to bring some form of change. You see, that's the unique thing about humankind. We know what the problems are. 
We know what the problems are out there. We just can't do anything about them. We, we can identify them, we just can't solve them. This is why we need someone to come from outside of our world, to come be like us and to deliver us. This is why we need one to come from heaven to save. This is the glory of the Christian faith, I think. That, that help will come. A and it's going to be among us. That God comes down to us. All the other religions, we're going up to him. But no, in the Christian faith, he comes down. He humbles himself and comes down to save. That's the beauty of our faith. I would encourage you to consider these things. I mean, I mean it, it is unexpected. And for many, it won't even be considered. But, but let, you know, heed the warning of C.S. Lewis. He writes, when Christ returns, how awful to know that all of it was true. And that it was too late to do anything about it then. Too late. So that's the first thing he says. It's a simple thought, but it, it ought to arrest us that it is unexpected. But the second thing we see is that his coming is, it demands that you prepare for it. You need to be engaged. And he really speaks to the church here. The church, look with me at 4 and 5. Because in 4 and 5 he says, But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light. You're children of the day. Uh, we are not of the night or of the darkness. Do you see what he's saying? He's giving you a new name. He's saying you're children of the day. You're children of, of light. Now, what is he speaking about here? Well, this light and darkness, this night and day, they're, they're metaphors. They're speaking to spiritual realities. That, that you are children of the day. Children of the day are those who have been forgiven, who have been redeemed, who understand the gospel, who have been rightly reconciled to God through faith in Christ. They're, they're part of a new order. They're part of a new creation. That's why we say you're born again. It's a new order that you're part of. It's a new race of people. And children of the night or children of darkness are those that are still ignorant of their sin. They're ignorant of the gospel. They're living this life as if God is not sovereign. They're children of the night. They're children of darkness. You know, it's interesting. Uh, Jesus and his coming as Messiah is spoken of in the Old Testament as a light dawning, as a day beginning. Uh, we see that in Isaiah 42. We see it in Isaiah 9. Uh, notice what Matthew picks up in chapter 4. He says it this way. He quotes Isaiah 42. He says, The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region of, our, of the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Do you see what Matthew's doing? He's taking an Old Testament promise that when the Messiah comes, a light will dawn, a day will begin. And then he, he brings it and makes it um, immediately follow, or proceeding the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. So it's in the preaching of the kingdom that a light is dawning. What is happening here? Well, it's creational language. Jesus has come back like the Father to recreate all things. And he's creating all things new through faith in himself. He's making us new. We are now children of the day, no longer children of the night. Isn't that incredible? Now, you don't notice that there's an overlapping of the ages is what's happening here. We are children of the day, those with faith in Christ. We understand the gospel. We understand our sin. We've come to him. We've repented. We've been reconciled. And we're living among children of the night, people who are living their lives as if God doesn't even exist. And these two worlds and these two ages and these two peoples are overlapping. Now, listen, you can't see the differences in the way they dress or the schools they go to 
or the food they eat or the homes they live, but you see the differences in their hope for one to come. You see the differences in their life and their faith and the way they, the way they think and the way they follow their Savior. That's the differences. That's what Paul's saying here. The, the children of the day won't be surprised. We're not surprised because we are expecting it. You may not know the day, but we know there is a day. The world doesn't know that, but we know that. And we're to live prepared for that day. How so? Well, look at 6 to 8 with me, because he tells us how to be prepared. He says, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and, and love, and, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Now, again, we got these metaphors working. I don't think drunkenness was the big problem in this church in Thessalonica. They're metaphors of spiritual and moral realities. To be awake, to be asleep, to be sober, to be drunk. What he's saying is that the children of the day are preparing themselves by keeping alert. We're keeping watch. We're not keeping watch to discern the times and the seasons to see if we can predict when it's going to happen this year or next year. Uh, keeping watch is keeping watch over your life. It's being sober. That word sober means to be self-controlled. That we're living as if there is a better day coming. That we're not clinging to the things of this world. That we're not trying to find meaning and purpose and value out of the accolades or the accomplishments that we have here. That we recognize that this world is a passing world. And that we're not anchoring ourselves to it to find hope and meaning. And significant. Uh, the sleepy do, they're like the they're like the guy asleep at the wheel. They're living as if this world's everything. They're trying to get meaning and value out of their success or accomplishments or education. I mean, think about it. I mean, how many people do you know? They live maybe in their twenties and thirties. They're living for their career, and when they're when they're forties and fifties, they're living to kind of hit the, uh, the the pinnacle of whatever their career can produce. And then they then they begin thinking about retirement. And they then begin living for retirement. And then in retirement, they're living for a better retirement. And all the days, they're pressing towards the cliff they're about to walk over, and they never think about the other side. It seems absolutely grandest delusion that we can keep living and not think about our own mortality or the return of Christ. And yet people do that every day. They're asleep at the wheel. They're driving right for the cliff. You want to wake them up. But we're sober. We're watchful. And I think that's what he's meaning about this soldier imagery here. You know, the breastplate and the helmet. You know, Paul uses this kind of armor describing the Christian life four different times in Scripture. He does it in Romans 13, 1 Corinthians. He does it in Ephesians 6. He doesn't always use the same language with each piece of armor. For example, in Ephesians 6, he speaks about the breastplate of righteousness. I think what he's showing us is faith, hope, and love. That triad of Christian virtues, that's how we prepare to increase in faith, trusting in the promises of God, to increase in love. That's what we prayed for in chapter 3, that we might abound and increase in love for one another and that we might have hope in that day coming. So I think what Paul's doing here, he wants us to prepare. He wants us to get ready. And he's motivating us. And to know that there'll be a day that could be in our lifetime, might, may not. 
but that you would say, I have to, I want to grow in faith. You know, one of the greatest threats to us in this faith at this time is lethargy or slothfulness. I mean, come on, if you were to be honest, was it not easier to watch me on the couch on Sunday morning with a controller in your hand and a cup of coffee? Was it not comfortable? You're in your pajamas, you don't have to get up, you don't have to drive here, you don't have to make conversation with a bunch of people you don't want to. I mean, wasn't it easier? It sure was. I loved it on Sunday morning. Not watching myself, but sleeping in. I admit it. I mean, it's easy. It's, the, the, the irony is that life is full of resistances. You know, when I was in high school, I took a physics class, and for the first time I learned you, know, you think of air, there's no resistance to air, but it does. You drop something, there's a terminal velocity. It can only go so fast because air resists. You think, how can air resist? Well, it does. You roll a tire along the road. At one point, the rubber hitting the road, it creates resistance. It slows us down. There are all kinds of resistances to you growing in faith, even though you know a day is coming. All kinds of resistances. And the irony is that some of the greatest resistances are the good things in life. Your family, your home, your wealth, your health, the success you have had. And those can easily distract you from growing faithfulness. You, and the, what Paul's saying is, but think about that day. Think about that day that you might increase in faithfulness. You know, Rachel loves to read uh, Spurgeon's evening and morning, morning and evening devotions. And she sent me this a few weeks ago. And uh, she was blessed by it as I was. And he says this, this is from April 26, he says, If wealth be not the trial, worldly care is quite as mischievous. If we cannot be torn in pieces by the roaring lion, if we may be hugged to death by the bear, the devil cares little which it is, so long as he destroys our love to Christ, our confidence in him. I fear that the Christian church is far more likely to lose her integrity in these soft and silken days than in the rougher times. We must be awake now, for we traverse the enchanted ground and are most likely to fall asleep to our own undoing unless our faith in Jesus be a reality and our love to Jesus be a vehement flame. Be aware of the soft and silken days softening us to this day. So we ought to be increasing in faith as we think about the day, growing stronger, but not just that, increasing in love. You know, love to the Christian is not a feeling, it is a choice we make. It's a willing sacrifice for the nature of others to display the gospel to them, that we engage the difficult, the trying, and the hard times for a display of love to people. And we are to be increasing in that. Now, as the day approaches, we are to be increasing in love for one another. This may look as simple as you just walking in forgiveness with those who have offended you. All of us carry some degree of hurt that you know, we have against another person, that we struggle with forgiving them. The person may be dead, but we all have that person in your mind right now that you know, there is still that unreconciled hurt. Or maybe it's even ongoing right now. Well, you know, knowing that Jesus is going to return actually helps us to forgive. Why do I say that? Well, because he is the perfect judge. Even if you will never get that clearing of the air, 
that perfect he will bring about a perfect reconciliation he is the judge he can do it far better than we can do it and he will do it fair and he will do it balanced so you can lay aside that need to have your pound of flesh and you can walk in a posture of forgiveness to people because he will deal with that just fine are there people that you need to forgive love them by forgiving them it doesn't mean you put yourself directly still in harm's way there may be wisdom needed to walk out what that forgiveness looks like in an ongoing relationship but you can still say father forgive them i forgive them forgive them and then third this idea of hope you know, you know how do we prepare well we want to increase in hope remember now the bible is not a book about how to live a good moral life the Bible is a clear declaration that God is going to redeem all of creation to himself. He's going to make it all right, and we're going to be redeemed, restored, adopted, and live with him forever. That's the declaration of the Bible. And that hope, that future hope, is to orient us in the present day so that we can live with hope in the midst of trials, adversity, sickness, even death itself. We can live with hope, with assurance. We are pilgrims. We are journeying. And if we know the inheritance is secure, then even if the road gets bumpy now, we continue the journey with a happiness. And that's what we're called to do. That, 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 that hope is like, um, it'd be like the ballast of a boat. You, you know, when I learned to sail, the first couple times I went sailing with my father, uh, we would go out and... Um, it was a 21-foot boat, and it had a, a keel. A keel is that, is that center part of the boat that's underneath the water, and that's where all the weight is placed. And, and the keel is to keep the boat steady from capsizing. So even when the wind blows and the boat begins to heel, that means that the, the side of the boat begins to move in the water. The first time this happened to me, I mean, I freaked out. The whole boat just began to move over. I look at my dad. He's calm. He's collected. The wind's blowing in his hair, and he's just having the time of his life. He said, we're not going to flip. We're fine. Just hang on. And, and, and then he began to explain, because I, you know, I was a, a young kid, began to explain that all that weight in the bottom of the boat, it cannot flip. Oh, it'll, it'll go way over, but it comes right back up. That's the kind of hope we have in this return of Christ, that even when the winds really blow into your life, there's a ballast you know, he's going to make all things new. Nobody's going to hold him in contempt for how, how he brought about life to us. There's a firmness to it. It's going to be just fine. It will be. So this coming will be unexpected. This coming is also going to be needing to be prepared for. You growing in faith. Are you, do you see yourself growing in faith? Do you see yourself finding trust to be ready at hand? Are you increasing in love for others? Would it be on display for others to see? Are you increasing in hope? Do you find yourself being drawn more and more to that day? The third thing he says is that this coming is to be something that we long for. It's a day of great joy. Incredible joy. Look with me at 9 and 10. In 9 and 10 he says, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. 
This is incredible news. He's telling us our destiny. He's telling us our future. He's letting us know that we're not destined for wrath. What does he mean by that? Does he mean that we're not going to go through the seven years of trouble, if there are seven years or 17 years or 72 years? Is he saying that he's going to deliver us from this wrath of men or wrath of Satan? No, he's not saying that. He's saying that he's going to deliver us from the wrath of God. The wrath of God. We will be delivered from the very wrath of God. God will not be a judge to us. God is a father to us. We have passed out of judgment. Notice what he says. He says, for God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation. So the Christian is going to obtain salvation through Jesus who died for us. What's going on here? Well, we will not face the wrath of God because Jesus has faced the wrath of God. That's what he means by he died for us. Listen, Paul doesn't give us this full theology of the atonement here. But, but you clearly see, I want you to see the nature of substitution for us. He died for us. In him dying for us, we don't die for our sins. He has died. This is the whole Christian message that Jesus Christ has come to have our sins placed upon him. That God can be both just and the justifier. Jesus bears our sins and he bears the righteous wrath of God against those sins so that we are standing to the side. He is our substitute. He is... He is in our stead, bearing the wrath, saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's bearing the wrath that we might obtain salvation. Is that incredible? That is your destiny, to obtain salvation. But notice what salvation is. I, I, I pray this rings so, so loud in your ears and so deep in your souls. Look at what salvation is. He says, that we might live with him. We might live with him. You know, we generally limit heaven, at least in our thoughts, to these spatial realities, trees and streams and waters and hills. We often don't think about salvation in terms of relational. We might live with him. We might be with him. We might enjoy the presence of God. It's so ironic that, that Ray prayed the way he did. We didn't talk about this, but I have this whole biblical theology on the presence of God that he just worked out in his prayer. You know, that in the, I even have, in the cool of the day, he was present with them. It was their sin that removed them. It was the desire to have rule rather than to have God that led the first couple out. But in Genesis 3.9, what does God say? The first thing he says, where are you? He's not lost and he's not lost them. He's approaching them because he wants to have fellowship. He wants to be with them. And then as Ray pointed out, the tabernacle. First, the fire on the mountain. Then he gives Moses instructions to produce a tabernacle so that he can dwell in the midst of his people. And that tabernacle becomes a temple, showing the permanent presence of God among his people. And then Jesus comes, as Ray pointed out. And what's his name? Emmanuel. And what does that mean? God with us. God is with us. But not for long because he sends another comforter and he says it's good it's good just like he said in creation it's good it's good he says it's good that i that i go away why because now the spirit's going to dwell within you and the spirit will be the guarantee of your inheritance until you see him face to face and then guess what you have him and this is promised in revelation 21 then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, what? Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. 
He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. That's the bookend of the Bible. The whole Bible is about being with him, living with him. How, how, how do you long for this? Do you long to be with him? When you think of heaven, do you just think of forgiveness of sins? Or do you just think of avoidance of hell? Or do you just think of being with relatives that you miss? But what do you think about? Do you think about being face-to-face -face with the creator of the universe? I, I mean, if you were an athlete, wouldn't it be great to talk to Michael Jordan if you just love basketball? Or if you're a scientist, to be <clears throat> have a sit-down with Albert Einstein? Or if you're an artist, just to sit down and have a chat with Picasso? I mean, wouldn't that be incredible? And, and then to live, to live, and to have a sit-down with God. You know, A.W. Tozier criticizes the church and he says this, he says that we have made the cross of Christ, we've seen it in utilitarian terms. Right, let me just read it to you. He says, oh, it's right here. No, don't you think I lost it? Nope. If the tender yearning is gone from the Advent hope today, there must be a reason for it. He says this, he says one reason is simply the popular Theology has emphasized the utility of the cross rather than the beauty of the one who died on it. The saved man's relation to Christ has been made contractual instead of personal. The work of Christ has been stressed until it has eclipsed the person of Christ. Substitution, which is important, has been allowed to supersede identification. What he did for me seems to be more important than what he is to me. Redemption is seen as an across-the-counter transaction which we accept and the whole thing lacks emotional content. We must love someone very much to stay awake and long for his coming. We must love him. That's the issue of, of love. Do you love him? It might be a point of repentance. You know, when Carol and I came back from overseas, uh, we didn't want to come back and just enjoy American food and American culture. We wanted to see our families. We wanted to see those that we loved. That's what we were so excited to see. That's what the Christian is, excited to see him. But notice that this is something that you and I are to encourage one another over. Look in 11 with me. In 11 he says, therefore encourage one another in all the more, excuse me, I'm reading Hebrews. Therefore encourage one another and build one another up just as you're doing. So the instruction that Paul is giving to us is simply this that you and I are to encourage one another. He's not just saying hold on and hang on till the end. He's saying build one another up. This is a time of great growth for us. But this isn't, this isn't instructive. This isn't work of the clergy. This is you building one another up. This is you encouraging one another. This is you instructing one another. Not just Christian friends outside the church, but you're doing this with your covenant members of this church. I mean, this is instruction to you. You know, we had an elders meeting the other night. We're finishing up a book. We generally read through a book a year, going through it. And it was talking about church planting, and or at least the last couple chapters were. And in this book on church planting, it says, well, before you plant a church, just make sure that your DNA is strong and healthy. That way, good churches plant good churches. Unhealthy churches often plant unhealthy churches. And some of the questions that the author asked to discern the nature of the church's health is, do the members of the church regularly teach and instruct one another from God's word? Or is it more driven by staff or, or elders? Another question was, uh, do the members understand 
uh, the importance of their helping one another fight sin in their lives. In other words, are we transparent enough that you and I are helping one another fight sin together? Or is that stuff off limits to everybody in the church? And then who's doing the bulk of the ministry? Is it South Elders or is it the people of God? Those are kind of, how would we answer those? I mean, are you engaging people, helping them fight the distractions that, that kind of dull their faithfulness? Are you working with anybody? Are you, are you expressing good outward love, sacrificial love for others? Displaying the gospel to them, encouraging them to increase in love, encouraging them to reconcile? Are you encouraging people to hope in the gospel? Those that are struggling or sick or weak, are you encouraging them in the hope? And let me ask you, are you willing to receive that hope? Are you willing to receive that encouragement? A lot of times people want to give you a word of encouragement. Hey, no, I'm good. I'm good. That's fine. You're so focused on this world right here that you don't think about the next, and you, you miss the value of that encouragement. And then I think about some of you, you may be sitting here and you're thinking, will I obtain salvation? Am I destined to obtain salvation? And, and you, you know, the way to obtain salvation is through faith in the one who died for us. This isn't a magical kind of select inner ring of people. It's people, come ye sinners, poor naked. That's why we sing the song over and over. The one thing he requires is to see your need of him. That's what it means to become a Christian. I see my need that this world's a mess and nothing we can do, no education, no money will fix it. I need Jesus to deliver me, not just from this world, but from my own sin. And we, we believe, we trust, we hope in him. And that's what leads us to obtain the salvation. He will be the judge of the living and the dead. We're going to read that in the Apostles' Creed in just a moment. Let me pray for us.